welcome to Linux Action News, our weekly take on Linux and the open source world. This is episode 59, recorded on June 24th, 2018. I'm Chris. And I'm Joe. Hello, Joe. It's good to be connected again from JB1 Studios in Seattle, Washington. And we kick things off this week with an Ubuntu Touch story. That's an interesting one to lead with. Yeah, Ubuntu Touch OTA4 release candidate has been released now, yeah, this is just a release candidate, but it's pretty close to what is actually going to be released, hopefully quite soon. And it's a bit of a milestone for them because it's based on Ubuntu 16.04 rather than 15.04. 15.04, of course, is not supported anymore by Canonical. This is supported for a couple of years, so they've bought themselves a bit of runway. Yeah, and the phone release has traditionally been an LTS behind. That's normal for the phone release. But I think the bigger thing, too, beyond the years of support that you get with an LTS is it means today, currently, they'll be receiving core package updates directly from upstream from the larger Ubuntu community. And I've actually tried this out on a Nexus 5, and I didn't have a huge amount of time to play with it, but it is pretty stable, much better than the last time I checked out the 16.04 version of it. It feels pretty much finished to me. There are a couple of little bugs in it that they uh, acknowledge, but otherwise, I think if you are all in on the Ubuntu touch experience and don't require certain Android apps like I do, I think you could use this as a daily driver already. Yeah, the project says you should be able to get away with using it as a daily driver as long as you're, quote, able to endure a little suffering, (laughs) (laughs) which I think is a good way to put it. And the other thing I like about this release is all of the previously supported devices are still supported. And like Joe said, there are a few rough edges and bugs that you have to suffer through. They're enumerated. On their post, just go to linuxactionnews.com slash 59 for a link to that. But sort of at a bigger, higher level, it's just sort of great to see this project still going. I'm not going to use it as a daily driver, but it's amazing to see that this community has picked this up and continued this effort even after Canonical decided it was no longer for them. And it's not dead yet, Joe. It's still kicking, and they've got a good, solid release here that appears existing users of the project can update to over the air right to their device. Yeah, you can't actually do that right now because I had the 15.04 version on a Nexus 5, and the OTA didn't actually come through. But that's because it's just release candidate. Once the final release comes out, hopefully very soon, um, then it will just work as a normal OTA, which is uh, pretty handy for people rather than having to manually flash it. Although you can flash it without wiping your data at the moment. Um, I just wiped data because I didn't have much um, much on there. But the most important thing here is if you've been following their Q&A, which they do on YouTube, but there's also an RSS feed for the audio version, which is what I catch every uh, couple of weeks. Everything that they're planning to do depends on getting this 1604 release done first. The Anbox stuff, which is getting Android apps working as an option for people, that requires 16.04. All of their plans in the future depend on getting this release out first. So it is, not only is it getting onto an officially supported base of 16.04, it is a base from which they can then build all of their plans and all of the cool stuff that they want to do. So it's massively important to them. So I would urge people to, if you've got a compatible device, do test it for them, look at the bugs that they're already aware of, report any new ones, And if you're a developer and you've got some time that you can spend on it, then I do urge you to contribute to the project because this is potentially one of the only Linux-based OSs for phones out there that's got any 
longevity to it. We'll see what happens with purism and whether they can deliver next year. But uh, for now, we've got Ubuntu Touch. It's here. Let's try and make it the best that we can. And on the opposite end of the spectrum, another project that we're seeing some life from is Android x86. They have an 8.1 RC1 release. Yeah, it's an Oreo-based x86 release of the Android project. And speaking of purism, I gave this a go on my Librem 15. Oh, how did you uh, get on with that then? Much better than in virtualization. It, it, they do have support for VMware and KMU to have Mesa 3D acceleration, but boy, is it dog slow. But when you load it on physical hardware with Intel HD graphics, you get full OpenGL acceleration. And so I downloaded the 64-bit ISO, and I chose the Taskbar Launcher, which gives you an alternative Windows-like launch bar at the bottom. Not quite like you see on Chrome OS. It's kind of a, a mix between what you would see on, say, Windows 10 and, and Chrome OS. And there's two launchers that it ships with, but I went with Taskbar because that's the one they've added with this release. And it worked pretty well. It also has modal windows, so you can maximize and they go full screen, or you can unmaximize and they're modal windows that you can drag around. So I had the Play Store open and the Twitter client open at the same time. And yes, if you're on 64-bit, the Google Play services comes pre-installed and it works pretty good. There's some bugs with the 32-bit version where it can crash. It's installed, but it's a little crashy. Uh, and I updated Chrome. I updated several apps on it. And uh, I set up my Google account. So my, you know, my emails were coming in via Android notifications. It actually wasn't a horrible experience. It was a little tedious managing the Windows. But if that Librem 15 had a touchscreen, it, it might have been a little bit better. Well, enter my Vivo book. I've got a little, um, I think it's 11-inch Asus Vivo book with a touchscreen, and it's almost made for Android x86. Oh, cool. It's just a great experience having a, a proper keyboard to type on when you need to. And um, I tried out both launchers on it. It's One of the launchers is just very standard Android. But this taskbar launcher is its just great. It's kind of a little bit Chrome OS-y. It's a little bit like LXQ. It's... Mm-hmm. Uh, it's exactly what I like. It looks very much like my XFCE desktop that I'm looking at right now. So I'm fully on board with it. A very simple searchable menu that works exactly as it should. I'm, I'm tempted to stick it on a partition on that Vivo book um, yeah. and use it regularly because it is, it's a great release. And the reason I wanted to talk about this was we actually talked about the last release, which was based on Android 7, uh, came out in February, which was long delayed. Um, whereas now, I looked it up, Android 8.1 came out six months ago, and now we are almost at a final release of Android x86. Okay, that's not great, but they're improving. It shows that development is accelerating on this. In my opinion, it's better than what you get on most Android handsets. Well, exactly, yeah. Um, it's not too bad, a six-month window. I mean, it would be nice for them to slim that down to be day one, if they could, but... Um, I can't see that happening anytime soon. And Android um, P is going to be out fairly soon by the looks of things. So they will end up being a release behind. But it shows that this project is not dead. And it's really cool to have, especially if you've got a touchscreen device like I have. Unfortunately, it doesn't work on my little tablet. Um, I don't think I've talked about this before, but um, a while ago, just as a kind of stupid purchase, I bought a Link 7 tablet. It's a 7-inch Atom-based tablet that came with Windows 8, and I bought it just to see if I could get Linux working on it. And um, 
Fedora actually boots straight away on it and works perfectly. So that's pretty cool. But unfortunately, it doesn't work with hardware acceleration with Android x86. So I, I could have had like a really cheap, really quite powerful Android tablet there, but mm. unfortunately not. But um, yeah, if you've got a touchscreen laptop, just boot it up live, check it out. It's uh, it's if anything else, it's just a bit of fun, really. Yeah, I mean to be clear, it does fully support the mouse and keyboard. I, so I was using it on my Librem 15 with just my trackpad and the keyboard. There's a couple of times where the mouse became unresponsive as something grabbed attention, so it wasn't a perfect experience. But there's just a couple other things they've added that do almost put this in the legitimate daily driver category. First of all, it's kind of a no-brainer if there's a couple of Android apps you really like, like the Twitter client, maybe the Evernote client. You know, if there's a couple of official Google Place apps that you just really like, it's kind of nice to be able to just pop them into a window on your laptop. The other thing they've added in this release is hardware acceleration for video codecs, which means you can watch video on this thing and get decent battery life. I think, although I didn't run it all the way down, I think I was getting five hours on my Librem 15. At least that's what it was projecting, and I spent at least two hours of that battery life. And then something else they, they added for this release, which I, again, think it kind of almost makes it legitimate as a daily driver, is they've added Ethernet support. So if you've got Ethernet on your laptop or your x86 machine and it's a common chipset, it's going to work now because there's, an, there's a Linux kernel powering this thing. And then the last thing that just makes it a lot of fun if you just want to play around is you can actually get this as an RPM. And you can download it, install it on an existing system, and it'll set up QMU for you. And they even have a guide for using Alien to convert it to a DEB to put it on Debian systems. So you can get it as an ISO, obviously, but you can also grab it as an RPM. Well, Android may well be on the path to becoming irrelevant anyway, because surely Fuchsia is the future. Oh, man, you're raising my blood pressure just talking about it. <laughs> and there's some details in the future Fuchsia releases, that's fun to say, that make it look like Linux apps could be coming to Fuchsia. What? Yeah, it's not just for mobile devices. There is some proper software in this thing to make it a full desktop stack. And one of the things they're adding is guest apps which allow you to boot up a virtual OS inside Fuchsia. And there's support today for a Debian-based environment, and now support is being added for what looks like a Chrome OS environment. And part of this is using that same Vert.io technology that so many other VMs use on Linux as part of Linux's KVM stack. Now, part of the Vert.io standard is this new VSOC, the virtual socket stuff that we've talked about recently that's enabling... Chromebooks to run Linux apps. In fact, that's that VSOC kernel module is the thing that Google is backporting to older kernels to enable Linux apps on older Chromebooks. This VSOC stuff's kind of the key piece to make no mouse leg, automatic adjustment of screen resolution, supporting a copy and paste and transferring of files of virtualized applications really smooth and transparent on a desktop. That's what Vert.io with this VSOC kernel hook can accomplish. And it's the same technology in Fuchsia and Chrome OS. And when you put it all together, it looks like they're making one singular runtime across these operating systems to run Linux applications. Yeah, and suddenly this is looking less like some abstract project for the future and more like something that's coming around the corner. And it's fairly obvious why Google wants to do this, at least to me, and that is because they don't want to have the Linux kernel anywhere near it because of the GPL. Fuchsia is all permissively licensed, and that's the way they want to go with it. Yeah, that's why it raises my blood pressure when we talk about it on the show. It gets me a little anxious because 
Linux powering all of these mobile handsets in everybody's pockets has been a big part of the Linux success story for a long time now. And it plays a huge role in the weight that Linux devices now carry with industry manufacturers. If that were to transition to a non-GPL operating system, all of the advances in that operating system would primarily be going to one single entity, Google. See, the advantage of Android being powered by Linux today is everybody has to contribute those improvements upstream. So the general technology platform that powers things from DigitalOcean droplets to watches is getting the same improvements. If it's all controlled by Google, uh, even if, if license, as long as the license is something that where people don't have to contribute back upstream or they don't have to make it available to everybody, we all lose. As a thought experiment, imagine for a moment if every singular improvement that Apple made to the core of macOS had to be upstreamed to the FreeBSD project. Now, I grant you, uh, it's not based on the FreeBSD kernel, and this isn't a good one-to-one comparison, but as a thought experiment, consider how much further ahead FreeBSD may be on the desktop today if all of the desktop improvements Apple had to submit back upstream. A lot of that is essentially what's happened with Android and Linux. So many improvements to power management, ARM compatibility, Wi-Fi and Bluetooth, those improvements have been contributed by hundreds of different hardware manufacturers that are involved in the Android ecosystem. And it's not like Android would go away tomorrow, but if Google made a strong shift, you got to imagine a lot of Google's ecosystem would eventually make the transition with them. But the difference here is that with it being permissively licensed, Google could make it proprietary, but they haven't yet. And so that is surely the great hope here that they will keep it open source just with the insurance policy of the permissive license. But it still benefits so many less users. You know, when you when you improve Linux as at a, as a whole, you improve e-commerce, you, you improve uh, the education sector, you improve the life of people like me who are now broadcasting and making their living using Linux. Like it extends to so many areas of the ecosystem. And even if Fuchsia is, you know, I don't care what it is, MIT license, I, I don't care what it is, Berkeley license, I don't care if it's uh, the, the, you know, the, the Sergey license. If they're, if they're the only people using that stack, if they're, if they're IoT devices and their Android devices, uh, and maybe, you know, their laptops are the only devices using that stack, then it only, it only benefits that narrow spectrum of an ecosystem. Yeah, but who's to say it will only be them using it? Because if it's open source, people can take it and do what they want with it. And if it's permissively licensed, then they can take it and do literally whatever they want with it. So you're going to potentially have loads of other OEMs um, and other companies making devices that are based off future. But I suppose then they won't necessarily have to contribute back to it. I suppose that's the point here. Yeah, and and really, I'm I'm not expecting all of the industry to switch. You know, the server market, the... There's so many things that are built on top of Linux. They're going to remain on Linux. Linux will be okay, but they won't necessarily be reaping all of that developer attention. Last.ting.com. Thank you to Ting for sponsoring the Linux Action News Show. This is a way to do mobile that breaks the mold, the lock-in that the duopoly has here in the States. It's a smarter way to do mobile because if you use less, you just pay less. If you're savvy enough to use Wi-Fi while you're at work and home, 
then you really don't need to be paying for, I don't know what, 12 gigabytes of data or whatever you might be paying for. Like you don't, you need to just pay for what you use. If you use a messaging application of any of them besides SMS, you don't really need to pay for a thousand text messages, do you? I get what, three or four a month, probably mostly from two-factor stupid login systems that shouldn't even be using SMS. Why do I need to pay for a thousand messages? That'd be ridiculous. It's pay for what you use, a fair price for however much you talk, text, and data you use. So this last month, I used way more data than I'll use for the rest of the year. So I'll pay more for that month. But for the next 11 months, I'm going to pay around 40-ish bucks a month for three lines. I got a phone and I got two MiFi devices that I use. One MiFi device is on the GSM network and the other MiFi device is on their CDMA network because Ting has both. And I can pick and choose whichever one is stronger and I just join my systems to that. I've got a Microtech router in my RV that connects to the different Wi-Fi access points and does a speed test. And then it'll switch to whichever Wi-Fi access point has the faster speed. And I don't have to do any of it. And legitimately, this last month of shows were recorded over the Ting connection. And often Joe would remark, you know what, our latency is better than when you're in the studio in Seattle. Because I am able to choose what works best in my area. And then to make things even better, I've got a booster up on the roof of the RV that really boosts the signal. And I can sit and have great phone calls over Ting. And I know that I'll just pay a little bit more that month. And then I'm done. It's simple, it's easy, it's pay for what you use with nationwide coverage, no contracts. Last.ting.com. Okay, so let's talk about how you are suddenly regretting backing the Atari VCS. I don't know. I I feel like this is a real hit piece by the register. They trolled Atari hard this week. I do agree that their PR train went off the tracks a little bit last week. Atari VCS posted a link to some register coverage on their Facebook page and added a little... um, a little commentary. They said, we honestly can't explain this article. Our executive sat with that reporter for a half an hour, and he wrote what he wanted instead of what was discussed with him. Sadly, there are even irresponsible trolls in, quote, professional positions, I guess. We clearly said that we were bringing engineering design models to GDC, and lots of people clearly don't understand what that means. Hunks of plastic? (laughs) Well, yeah. Yeah, that's how you finalize the designs and confirm that you can get the look and feel of what you want for the finished product. Sad. And uh, so the register had written, you know, hey, they were just hunks of plastic that didn't work yet. They didn't have any working demos. And uh, then the register responds with uh, a full copy of the interview with this executive, this marketing executive at Atari. And it's, it's pretty bad. The guy doesn't have any answers. There was no product to show at the time. They hadn't even finalized the chip design. Uh, only one of the two controllers was functional. <laughs> so I agree it doesn't sound good, Joe. Yeah, and this was back in February when they'd already kind of missed their initial goal to get the pre-orders in. And now here we are in June and people like you have backed this and it's only got a week left to go. And you're thinking to yourself, well, hmm, if they had no clue what they were doing back then, maybe they are not going to be able to deliver this after all. And um, that original article had gone under the radar for most people. I think I'd read it at the time, but I'd forgotten about it. Whereas now they've just had the Streisand effect, haven't they, at the end of the day? I think they should have just not said anything about it. Mm -hmm. Uh, And now we're all talking about it again, and it's looking really bad for them. But it's too late. People have backed it. I don't know. Can you get a refund on these uh, crowdfunding sites? I've never tried. See, I I wouldn't expect anything but exactly this. Because in the interview, I I listened to the whole 30-minute interview because the register kindly embeds it in their article. And um, the guy says... 
they're not worried about building the Linux system because they already have some early prototypes of that. That's the easy part. The hard part is going to be building the UI on top of the Linux system. I agree with that. I don't think they need to finalize any of the... It's an x86 box with an AMD CPU. And yeah. that's what it is. Like, it, it doesn't... The design of the box, the ports, how the controllers connect, and how they interface with the software is way, 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 way more complicated. And the deals with the different uh, game publishing outlets, building a store around all of that, that's the hard work that is going to be really tough to pull off. And it sounds like in that interview, that stuff's already in the works. Like he just couldn't talk about it because they want to play the hype game and they want to do timed announcements with specific partners at specific times so they just wouldn't tell the register anything. That's where some of this is coming from. Uh, And as a backer, I'm actually not really worried. If you were to ask me, frankly, I'd say this is exactly what I'd expect. I would would think they probably have a few uh, prototypes working outside of a case that are probably not much more than a new high-end NUC at this point that they're they're trying out. And that's what I and then I would imagine they're going to try to find the best price to performance ratio and thermal overhead and put it in this case. And then they'll just install some x86 based Linux system on there and they'll call it good. Yeah, well it's going to be based on Ubuntu, isn't it? So that means that you've got all of the work that Canonical are doing there for free essentially because it's open source. Yeah. And so then you've just got to build, well, I say just the UI and the stuff you talked about there. But not making it an ARM-based system means that you can just put more or less whatever x86 chipset in there you want, and it's going to work with Ubuntu. Right. And if you get some sweet partnership with Netflix where they're going to open up 4K HDR streaming, then that might force you to use the most latest AMD chip. But if that deal with Netflix doesn't work out and you're not going to have any super high-end thing pushing the machine at launch, you might go with the AMD chip that's already out and a little bit cheaper. So I could even understand not finalizing that design yet because Linux itself is a known quantity they can already work with. The AMD hardware pipeline's pretty well established at this point. And the box seems like it's probably got the thermal capacity for whatever they want to end up doing. It's just going to really come down to the GPU. So I'm actually thinking this is fine at this point. Maybe I'm overly optimistic. Maybe I'm gonna maybe I'm gonna be regretting that backing of the Atari VCS. But as of right now, I'm only at yellow alert. It's funny that you use the words this is fine. Suddenly I'm picturing that meme with the dog and the fire. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. Everything seems to be fine over at Fedora, at least I think. I'm not quite sure exactly what's going on, but it it appears to be the next shoe dropping in this merger of Red Hat and CoreOS. Yeah, it turns out that Michael Tunnell's joke turned out to be true, calling it Fedora CoreOS. It has a good ring to it. Yeah, it does have a good ring to it, although there's a bit of baggage there with the old Fedora Core. Ah, oh, what you call baggage, I call nostalgia. <laughs> Fair enough. But now we know that this is going to be the upstream community version of Red Hat CoreOS. So going off of a post that Matthew Miller made at the fedoramagazine.org site, it sounds like the new Fedora Core OS is going to be built from Fedora Upstream rather than from Core OS Upstream. But the way it deliver- gets delivered will be more like the way Core OS is delivered today. Containers of clustered host OS that keep themselves up to date so you just don't have to worry about it, as he puts it. Now, the technical details of how all of this was going to work are still being flushed out. So 
don't jump to any conclusions yet. Fedora, though, really is a community-driven project, too, so you could still get in on the conversation and help direct where this goes. Now, he writes, I expect that over the next year or so, Fedora Atomic Host will be replaced by a new thing combining the best of Container Linux and Project Atomic. This new thing will be called Fedora Core OS and serve as the upstream to Red Hat Core OS. That's a lot to take in. I've invited Matthew Miller to come on Linux Unplugged this week. He's got a super busy schedule, as you can probably imagine. But if it can work out, I'll try to get it from the horse's mouth. No offense, Matthew. To try to understand what's really going on here, because it sounds like a major shift for Fedora, but one that the project is kind of architected to take on, so it has a chance to work out. And the key aspect you mentioned there was the community involvement. It's early enough in this whole process that the community can get involved can help shape this thing and potentially even shape the direction that Red Hat's going to take Red Hat Core OS. It seems like it's really early days, so it's all still in the works, but it could make Fedora really stand out as a uniquely differentiated Linux distribution. Not that it isn't already, but this is a clear differentiator, so I'm kind of excited to see where they go with it. In the meantime, we do have some data for you Ubuntu users. You recall the new survey that was baked into Ubuntu 18.04, well, Canonical has done the first round of publishing the results. And very interesting results they are, too. Some of them are pretty kind of what you'd expect, like stuff like people only having one GPU mostly and one display mostly. But one thing I was quite surprised about was that 1080p is the most popular display resolution. Yeah, 1080p. We finally reached above that low-res netbook graphic size that we were hanging out for so many years. But the thing that uh, you don't seem disappointed, and I kind of am, is one monitor? Everybody knows the more monitors, the better. I'm a little disappointed in that. Yeah, it's not a battle station if you've only got one monitor, right? (laughs) Yeah, it's just way better with at least two regular monitors and one vertical monitor from personal experience. So come on, everybody. You got to jump in on that bandwagon so that way distro maintainers are encouraged to support it more. Uh, The thing that jumped out at me is 15% of people installing Ubuntu 18.04 already are using the new minimal install option. That's a pretty high adoption rate for a brand new feature. 75% did a fresh install, while 25% did an upgrade. I would bet you that number will climb after 18.04.01 comes out, or 18.04.01 comes out, because that's when existing 16.04 users are going to get the prompt upgrade. The 16.04 desktop users haven't even gotten that, like, hey, it's time to go. Um, Also, as a little disappointed, just going to say it right now, 8 gigs of RAM is the most common, really, people? No, 4 gigs was more common than 8 gig, just slightly, which that didn't surprise me because most laptops, most cheaper laptops that you've bought in the last, I don't know, four or five years have come with 4 gigabytes. But yeah, 8 is actually slightly lower than that. But uh, it's interesting that at least a couple of people had 128 gigs of RAM. That must be some serious workstations. Booyah, that's awesome. Yeah, because remember, these are all desktop installs. Also, speaking of the survey itself, a pretty strong 67% opt-in rate to take the survey. That's pretty good. And that's just within the last few weeks, 67% of people. Yeah, although I do somewhat feel in the minority here because 90% of people download updates during the installer. I never do that because I had one bad experience one time. Half the people use the restricted add-ons. I never bothered with that. 
And only about, well, under a third of people use auto-login, which I always do. <laughs> so I feel like I'm uh, out in the cold here. Except for the codex. Uh, I'm on the same. I had I had a one-time bad experience with downloading updates that made the install take forever and eventually hang. So I, I filed my bug. I did. And then I've never used it since. And I installed the codex every time. And on all of my studio systems, I set up auto-logins, which is the majority of my installs. But the one key bit of data that we don't have yet is how many of these installs are there. That's the one thing they didn't publish, and they haven't published the raw data yet. Will talks about wanting to do that as soon as possible, but with all this GDPR stuff and general data protection concerns, you can see why they've just put some um, percentages out there for now, and they must be being very, very careful about what data they're actually going to release. Yeah, they did tell us that the U.S. has the biggest Ubuntu user base, followed by Brazil, India, China, and Russia. Well, that's kind of the populations of the world, really, isn't it? It's not a massive surprise. And if you look at the graph, there's, uh, I think you said every single country in the world, there are Ubuntu users. So that tells you something. I wonder how many distros could say that. Yeah, we have the data linked in the show notes, as well as It's Foss did an infographic of all of this, which, hey, look at that. We got an infographic about something, Joe. And uh, we'll put a link to that in the show notes as well. Well, I look forward to quizzing Will a little bit more about this on Late Night Linux that we record tomorrow night. Uh, so yeah, check that out and hopefully we'll get some more info. And I do want to know when we're getting the raw data because so many people want that. Yeah, and we'll cover it when it happens as well as all the other stories in Linux and the open source world. Go to linuxactionnews.com slash subscribe for all the ways to get new episodes. And go to linuxactionnews.com slash contact for ways to get in touch. And you can support the entire network at our Patreon page, patreon.com slash jupitersignal. We'll be back next Monday with our weekly take on the latest Linux and open source news. I'm at Chris LAS. I'm at Joe Ressington. Thank you for joining us, and we will see you next week. See you later.